Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Kid working yeah. on tractors and sprayers and yeah. So then um, after Deloach, uh, I went to work at Cundy out in the Sonoma Valley. They had built a, a fairly new winery with some caves. Uh, their brand was pretty small at the time. It was like maybe 15 or 20,000 cases, but yet they had like this 100,000 case winery. So they had custom crush clients in there. And Mary Edwards had three different clients. Uh, Paul Hobbs made his first few vintages there. Uh, a guy named Lester Hardy was making wine for Fritz Maytag of the Maytag appliance and blue cheese. He owned a property over Napa. So I was hired to kind of support Dave Noyes in with the Cundy wine, so kind of the assistant winemaker. But my primary goal was to do the custom crush winemaking. So I would sit down with each of the consulting winemakers and go over their protocols and procedures. And then it was my duty to make sure that they got executed out in the cellar the way they wanted it done. So that was a, an education within itself, you know, working side by side with Mary Edwards. Um, like I said, Paul Hobbs and I became good friends. And, you know, they just, uh, they were patient with me. Um, I think the fact that Randy had instilled in me that you've got to do everything right all the time um, kind of carried through onto that next job. And um, that really helped me, I think, gain a little bit of respect from those winemakers that they knew that I was going to do everything within my power to follow their procedures as much as I could. And um, I was there for a couple of years and, and, um, then had a uh, an old vineyard manager uh, up in Dry Creek at a winery called Alderbrook. Uh, the owner was thinking about, he owned the vineyards, uh, was thinking about buying the brand from uh, Phil Staley, uh, Mark Raffinelli, and John Grace. And he had some grapes. This is about 93, 94, somewhere in there. Uh, he had some some Chardonnay that he was going to custom crush, and he wanted me to consult. So I went to the Cundies and asked them if, if I could do this consulting on the side, and they weren't too, too thrilled about that. So I went back to the guy and just said, you know, it, I, I need this other job, um, and I like working for the Cundy family. They're really, really, really nice, uh, good family to work for, uh -huh. and they... Um, so the, this guy approached me then after that vintage. He was buying the winery and he offered me the winemaker job at Alderbrook. So I took that, I think 94, 93 or 94 was my first vintage there. And then I, I made about three or four vintages. And we really did well. The wines uh, did very well. Um, in various competitions. The writers were, we were getting a lot of good press. I personally was getting a lot of press. They were asking questions about some of the techniques and some of the things I was doing. And um, late 96, early 97, I was 
approached by Jess Jackson to take over Hartford Court. And um, the the big thing there was Jess was kind of given handing me the the crown jewel in my mind at that time of of uh, Pinot and Chardonnay in the Kindle Jackson portfolio, beautiful winery out in Forestville that uh, Mary Edwards had designed. It was the old Laurier winery, so I knew the the winery and the property pretty well. And he, when I interviewed with Jess, he just said, you know, I want to go after William Salium. I want to, I want to make wines better than William Salium. And I thought, wow, this would be a, this would be a great challenge. And, wow. you know, Kendall Jackson was really going full force by then. Jess was hiring kind of every rock star winemaker he could find. I mean, he, he had a portfolio. I remember seeing a picture of him and and a bunch of his winemakers uh, on the cover of Wine Spectator. Um, and it was just this, this stable of, um, like I said, brilliant winemakers. And I think that's what really propelled Kendall Jackson in the late 90s and even into the early 2000s on all of their brands. You know, um, he, he just went after the best winemakers. So to be included in that, crowd was very humbling actually so I'm, i barely get like my first vintage made and i'm i'm bottling the previous vintage i'm making some of the la crema reserve wines and i get approached by bert williams uh one one day i get a call from his daughter margie and she invites me she says my dad would like to meet with you on your way home because he knew i came up west side road i lived in Healdsburg. And so I stopped by and Bert and I started chatting. We started tasting wine in the cellar. And I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to taste with Bert in the cellar, but you know, you never spit out his wines. You know, I'd heard these rumors that Robert Parker had gone out there and, you know, Bert thieved the first wine and he took a sip and spit it into the drain. And Bert said, okay, that's it. I'm done with the, the tasting and kicked him out after that. And um, actually did ask Bert then. He said, yeah, why? He goes, I worked too hard to make these wines. Why would I let him spit these wines out? He was there to taste them. Why wasn't he tasting them? So uh, I spent like three hours with Bert that, that late afternoon into early evening. And the whole time he's asking me these questions and I'm thinking, you know, he's talking about that they were had sold the winery and I, I figured he was going to ask me if I knew of somebody that they could recommend for the job. And so my mind's kind of racing about who, who would I think would be good for, uh, do I have any friends or somebody in one of my tasting groups or one of my technical groups? And then he pops a question and says, Hey, I'd like you to, to meet with John Dyson. I think you would be a good fit. Um, you know, you know, the wines, you're a good winemaker. And I was kind of, I think my reaction was, well, I already got a job, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, thanks. But, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm only a couple vintages in at a Hartford court. And um, so that was kind of the end of it. I just basically said, no, I'm, I'm, I don't, I've, I've got this job. So about Two weeks later, I got another call from Bert and he said, hey, look, you know, um, John Dyson, 
you know, I've spoken to him about you and, you know, talk is cheap. Would you just meet him? And I said, well, okay. And we were trying to figure out a time. And I was telling Bert that I was going on a marketing trip for Hartford Court. And it was a classic, you know, Boston, New York, Chicago, Denver, back to San Francisco in like four days. So it was like a lunch here, a dinner there, a lunch. Sometimes you spent like six hours in your hotel room, took a shower, changed your clothes, got back in another car. So when I was in New York, I said I could meet in at my hotel for breakfast. And that's, that's when um, Bert finally set that meeting up. So um, that's kind of how that introduction happened to William Selling. That's absolutely fascinating. It's quite clear that they wanted you. I mean, Bert clearly is probably as straight as they come. Yeah, and you know, I just, I just didn't think, you know, he was telling me he had a five-year consulting contract, you know, he was staying on for five years, and so I think why I finally agreed to it were a couple of reasons. One was, you know, uh, um, I would get to work under Bert, so I was always fascinated with the, the wines, and I wanted to understand more about the techniques. They really didn't let anybody into the cellars. Like you never really got to walk around and, and look at equipment. Um, there weren't a lot of photos of things. Unless you worked there, I'm not sure that you really understood how the wines were being made. So that was a huge thing. Um, just to be able to, to understand kind of what was going on in Bert's head and how that translated into those wonderful bottles of wine. The other thing was just the vineyards that he had got to work with. I mean, we're talking about the premier Pinot Noir vineyards in Sonoma County, if not in, you know, all of Northern California at least. Um, Rocchioli, Allen, Hirsch, Precious Mountain, Coastlands. You know, I thought, my God, do, who who gets the opportunity to to work with fruit like that? I mean, we had vineyards close to those vineyards at Hartford Court, but it, we weren't getting that particular fruit. Um, so that was kind of another thing in the back of my mind that, you know, it was worth at least having this conversation with John Dyson. So I met John. Um, that morning, I'd flown in late from Boston. I don't think I, I actually arrived at my hotel till after midnight. And then got checked in, settled in. And then I think I had to meet John at like 7 or 7.30 that, that morning um, at the hotel restaurant. So we, we sat down for breakfast. And of course, they're in suits. You know, it's Manhattan. And this, this was only like maybe my second time to... New York City. And I'm in like khakis and a polo shirt. I mean, I was going to do ride-alongs with one of the the sales reps. And I think I had a luncheon somewhere. Uh, I may have brought a blazer with me to wear at some point, but you know, I'm a California winemaker. I, you know, I, I didn't really own any ties or suits or anything. So we sit down and John sits across from me and it, the president of his company, Clay Lifflander, sits off to the right. And we sit down and, and I said, I didn't know a whole lot about John. Um, I had asked some questions. I, I don't remember if you could really look people up on the internet back then. This would have been like 98. Um, 
So I didn't know a, a whole lot about him other than he had a couple of other wineries and then what the information that Bert had given me. So I sat down and I said, well, I've got kind of one non-negotiable item. And if we can't get past that, then I'm kind of wasting your time and you're wasting my time. So John kind of sits back in his chair and folds his hands, kind of puts them in his lap and, and he says, so what might that be? And I proceeded to tell him that, you know, I'm a, a longtime customer of William Salyam. And my allocation was so large now, I was spending upwards of like seven, $8,000 a year on just William Salyam wines. Now, I wasn't keeping them all. Uh, I was selling some bottles to friends and colleagues because if you took your whole allocation, Ed would keep giving you access to the, the, the really small I remember. lot. I was on the list. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so you had to take, you know, like six cases each, each release. But like I said, you know, I was writing $3,500 or $4,500 um, checks every six months to them. And I said, you know, I make wine for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is because I like drinking my own wines. So if we work out a deal, you know, as part of my compensation, I want a case of everything I make. Nice. So he just seemed like five minutes. It was probably 30 seconds, you know, just crickets, <laughs> just silence. And then Clay, the, the president of his uh, capital management company, leans into me and says, is that it? And I kind of said under my breath, I should have asked for two. <laughs> <laughs> and John heard me say that and he started laughing and uh, he said, yeah, you probably should have asked for two, but I'll agree to one. And uh, I think we can continue this conversation. I don't think that'll be an issue in, in these negotiations. So then we just started talking about soils and you know what my interests were and kind of why I was interested in the job. And, you know, I think it was, you know, again, the fact that I got to work with Bert, I got to work with these really great grapes, you know, and I remember talking to John a couple years later, and he said that I was the only candidate that didn't ask what the salary was. And um, he was very impressed with that. I wasn't worried about money. That that wasn't um, that wasn't going to motivate me enough to to take the job, and he I think he ha obviously had a pretty good idea of what I was making at Hartford Court. He and Jess were actually friends, and um, so it was it was kind of interesting uh, to hear that from John's perspective later on that that he was kind of impressed that that I didn't ask you know well what what are you going to be what are you going to be compensating me. I just figured it was going to be, you know, pretty much about what I was making already. Incredible. Yeah. Wow, what a momentous meeting that really um, was seminal. Yeah, and my plan was to kind of last the five years with Bert, you know. And you know what was funny? I, I was going through that first harvest. <clears throat> Bert would come around, would taste tanks, would taste a few wines here and there, but not an awful lot. And, um, you know, I didn't realize uh, really 
from Bert's perspective, how painful it must have been to sell his namesake brand to somebody. Yeah, good point. And I didn't realize that till after, till I was in that same position where I was leaving and, and going on. Um, because I did treat it as if, you know, it, they were my wines or like my name was on the label. And I always felt an obligation to Bert and Ed that, that the wines be made to a certain standard, that you had to uphold the William Salyam quality standard. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what motivated me over those, those next, you know, few years. Um, like I had no intention of staying almost 17 years. Um, but... I'm glad I did. It was the career of a lifetime. But we had gotten to a point where I, you know, when I started, we had no estate vineyards. We owned no vineyards. We owned no facilities. Everything was either leased or rented. Um, and I was part of that process over over that decade and a half of acquiring property, planting the grapes, from road direction to clone to root stock to how we were going to farm it, trellising, irrigating, not irrigating, day-to-day farming, things like that. And it was just kind of all-consuming. So you didn't, it's like time just kind of passed. And, um, you know, all of a sudden it was literally 15, 16 years later. And we had accomplished so much. We now had three estate properties. Uh, we'd built a new winery at the Lytton Estate. Um, you know, uh, we had a, a place to receive people. Uh, we had built a real good winemaking team, you know. And I I was working a lot of hours. Um and, you know, the machine wasn't going to stop moving in, in a good forward, positive direction. And I wanted to slow things down. My daughter was in middle school and I was starting to be late to basketball games and I was starting to be late to birthday parties. And I was missing some of the things in life that were really important to me because of kind of this all-consuming job. And I had these conversations with John and he was extremely sweet about it. And, you know, we took some things off my plate from signing checks to um, all kinds of things uh, that, because I had also assumed the GM duties mm-hmm. uh, in 99. Uh, so I hadn't hardly been there six, eight months and, um, John made some changes in all of his wine operations. And then he asked me if I would not only do the winemaking, but would I be the GM, which sounds like an important job, but there were like six of us there. So I was kind of, and he was going to pay me X amount more money. And I was like, shoot for that much. Yeah, no problem. You know, how hard could it be kind of thing. So just taking on those kind of management duties and then having just wonderful mentors on on how to manage a business and not just a business, but the wine business, which is rather complex, you know? So um, it was just a great experience, but again, all consuming. And 
I just needed a different, a different direction. I needed to do something different. I needed to spend more time with my family and kind of uh, have more control of my own personal time. And that's when I went to John and just said, you know, we need to figure out a way to start phasing me, me out of this. And it was like a year and a half process that, that we did this. I, um, you know, I wasn't leaving till the end of 2014 and the decision was made by, we all agreed to this, um, that we would announce it to the, to the public and to the industry in like January of 2014, that I'd be leaving at the end of. 2014 and Jeff Mangahas, who was my associate winemaker, would take over as director of winemaking. So, um, you know, John really made that transition, I think, much easier for me um, by doing that. And, um, you know, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but that kind of, that that announcement really kind of opened up the door and all of a sudden I started getting calls and emails from people that I would have never thought to hear from. One of them being Bill Price. He was actually one of the first guys that called. Bill and I met over at Zazu restaurant in Sebastopol. He already was owner of um, Costa Brown or he led the, the group that that um, owned Costa Brown. He was also the managing partner of uh, Kistler. And um, I'm not sure if they had already picked up Gary Farrell by then, um, but he had, you know, smatterings of interest in some other wine brands as well as he owned Durrell Vineyard. And then in 2012 had acquired uh, Gap's Crown. So Bill and I had some, uh, just a real good conversation and he talked to me about three sticks and kind of the direction he wanted to see that brand go kind of from hobby to real winery you know like so he wasn't just writing checks all the time that there would actually be some income coming back and um you know we just kind of left it like let's stay in touch kind of thing and you know i just said i don't know what i'm gonna do but i'm gonna have to make a decision here by the end of the end of the year. So he was very patient and, and um, very encouraging. So meanwhile, then I met with a couple of other people from Leslie Rudd, who wanted to build me a winery out on West Side Road to a guy named John H. Fisher, who um, is part of the Levi Strauss family and the Gap, his, his, his siblings, and they own that. Um, an interesting guy. Um, Howard and Sherry Schultz from uh, Starbucks. Howard flew down one Sunday and I hosted him out at William Salyum for about four hours and we tasted through wines. And at the end of the, uh, the, end of the day uh, in the tasting, he said, I've got a couple of questions for you, Bob. And I said, sure, what, what's up? And he said, do you think John Dyson would sell William Salyum? And I said, you know, I think that's kind of a question for John Dyson. Um, I think a lot of it would depend on who's asking. And if you're asking, you know, because one, it's going to take somebody that has some capital. I mean, this isn't going to, you know, we, I just built a $30 million winery and we've got all these properties and, you know, it would have to be somebody that, that was serious. 
and um, I said I'd be happy to to make the introduction and you know if you would like to have that discussion with him and he said yeah I would I I would like to do that so I I I wrote John and kind of passed their their emails and their phone numbers along so. Um, then I said, so what's the other question? He goes, so if I can get John to sell it to me, would you come back and run it for me? And I said, well, you know, we could have that discussion. Um, if the latter happens, then let's, we, we can have that. So yeah, I'd be willing to have that discussion. Um, it may not be in the exact same capacity that I'm in right now, but yeah, we could talk about it. And um, I did find out later talking to John's uh, general counsel and, and CFO, Alan Rivera, that they did meet with Howard and had some conversations. And yeah, I guess just nothing. You know, um, John loves William Salyam. I mean, it's a very personal thing for John. It's not, it's not just a business. And I think John has had just businesses. You know, he looked at it strictly from from a manufacturing point of view and a sales point of view and uh, income returns. Um, William Salyam wasn't that business. You know, William Salyam was really a labor of love for John. And, you know, I think he, he felt a, a, uh, a real uh, tie to it, an emotional tie, that it was his job to, to shepherd William Salyam through this next phase of its of his existence, you know. John's actually now owned William Salyam longer than Bert and Ed owned it, which is kind of interesting to think about. Bert only made 17 vintages there. And so that was kind of the joke when I told Bert that I was leaving. I was coming up on what would have been the 17th vintage. And uh, I said, I guess after 17 vintages, they have to find a new winemaker. <laughs> that was our our little joke during lunch. Fascinating. So clearly, there was a lot of folks that wanted to work with you, and you know, could provide the infrastructure. Yeah, I had some just amazing assistant winemakers over the years, and you know, um, I think a lot of people would have felt and saw us as having a lot of turnover. You know, an assistant winemaker would last maybe four years, three or four years. Um, and, you know, I always kind of chalked it up to, I always asked them what was their kind of their end goal. And if they didn't say that they wanted my job, then I wasn't going to hire them because I wanted an assistant that was going to push me, that was going to make me a better winemaker. So you look for individuals that ultimately want your job. And nice. so many of them moved on to now become winemaker at a lot of other successful wineries. And it's very gratifying to have been able to help them, if I did, get, get through to that, take that path to, to being the winemaker. Well, your career certainly bespeaks rich it's rich in mentorships. Um, so many individuals that you mentioned clearly had a huge impact on um, the um, extraordinary professional that you've become, but also perhaps a lot of personal value, uh, values that were imparted. And it sounds like you 
paid it forward and you're continuously paying it forward to people that come across your path. Um, that is such an interesting and humble approach when you're hiring somebody that wants your job, um, that really speaks to your leadership qualities um, and really just generosity in every sense of the word that you're not territorial in any sense. You really want to excel and you want to be pushed. Well, thanks. Uh, that you know that uh, I've I've always kind of approached it like that, and you know if if um, I always felt I could just go find another job, and I still kind of feel like that. So moving on from William Salium, trying to figure out what it was that I really wanted to do. Um, part of my conversation with Bill Price was that I wanted to get back to day to day winemaking, day to day grape growing. And to be honest with you, I really didn't want to do any of the management, uh, GM, marketing kind of things. I was done traveling. Um, I wanted to mentor the next generation of winemakers and viticulturalists and, um, you know, hopefully get paid a pretty good wage to be able to do that. Uh, maybe not as much as you would as a GM but enough to, you know, live comfortably and, and um, you know, I just, I don't need a lot. I, I have a wonderful home. I got a wonderful family. And, you know, I think growing up in a farming family, I, I've never really serviced a lot of debt. So it's not like I, I extend myself further than I think I can, I can uh, pay things back. So, Three Sticks was one of those challenges where, you know, they were bringing in a, a kid named Ryan Pritchard, who was the winemaker or was the assistant winemaker at a place called um, Medlock Ames up in Alexander Valley. And Ryan had worked a harvest for me back in 2008 at William Salyam. And, and Ryan was an engineering major and had worked, had gone to Cornell and got inter introduced to wine kind of through the hotel program at Cornell University. And then was living in Colorado for a while and working for some kind of management company, but really had the bug for, for winemaking. And in 2008, decided to make the shift and move back to California. He grew up in Berkeley and, um, came to work for me in 2008 as a harvest intern and was like one of the last people I think we laid off that, that vintage. And I remember him coming into my office and, you know, it, it was December or January and he was like, you know, am I going to get laid off here anytime soon? You know, I need to, I need to start looking for a real job. And I said, well, I'm not going to lay you off because one, you can do the work. You're really good at what you're doing. And, you know, I'd keep you around forever. I just don't have a, a full-time job for you at this point. I just hired a seller master like eight months before harvest. So uh, um, I said, let's, what do you want to do? You know, let's, let's find you a job. And he said, you know, I, I think I'm ready to, he'd completed a bunch of UC Davis online courses and, um, just a smart, smart kid, good palate. And um, I think he took the um, custom, one of the assistant winemaker jobs at Copan Custom Crush over in Santa Rosa. So that's where he, he uh, kind of apprenticed for a couple of years there 
you know, again, learning from a lot of different consultants and winemakers, getting to work with a lot of different varieties. You know, it was it was kind of that education I think I got over at Kundi. And then he moved on to Medlock Ames. And then from Medlock Ames was just looking, you know, for something different and had been in contact with somebody who knew Bill Price. And so they were hiring Ryan, even as Bill and I were talking, Bill Price and I were talking. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan was going to be hired regardless, whether I was coming on board or not. So um, I finally worked out a deal with Bill late in December. And and that's when then I, I started in on working at Three Sticks. Brian and I both started officially January 1st, 2015. And so, um, you know, part of, of my contract was that I would also uh, be able to make my own wine, okay. which I really wasn't wasn't thrilled about doing. Um, you know, I was 53 years old, 52, 53 years old, and I knew what it would take to start a brand. And one, I wasn't sure I had the energy to do it. Um, and probably just as important was, did I want to take the capital that I could probably put someplace safer and invested in something a little less risky than the wine business? Um, so I kind of drugged my feet on making my own wine, um, that that first vintage. But finally was kind of convinced. I mean, Bill Price kept offering me grapes. And my wife would say, you know, you can do this now. Why don't you do it? And finally, about May or June, I said to my wife, OK, if we're going to do this, I have a few conditions. One is that she and I will be the only owners of, of the brand. I'd been offered a, a lot of capital from various friends, longtime friends, chefs, musicians that wanted to back me on my own brand. I said, you know, I want to I want to make sure that we're making all the decisions. So it'll be just us. Um, I'm only putting in X amount of money and, you know, if we can't make it with that, then we'll sell off the inventory and we'll close the doors. And then most importantly is there's got to be a reason to do this. And if it's just to see my name on a bottle of wine, then we're not going to do the project because that's not what it's about. So I said, what I would like to do is um, after operating expenses, uh, we use the, the hopefully additional capital to support children's charities, schools, and children in crises. And so we had those kind of conversations back and forth. I would do all the winemaking, as much of the uh, record keeping as possible, as far as, you know, all of the the legal stuff with the TTB and the ABC, I would, I would file all of those forms, but then Heather would have to do the sales and marketing. So we were, we, I was able to find uh, a few ton of, couple tons of Pinot and a little bit of Chardonnay. So that first year I made like eight barrels of Pinot Noir in 2015 and uh, three barrels of Chardonnay. And that's because basically that's what I could afford. But I also went after some really good fruit. You know, I I paid some some, uh, high prices. You know, I told my wife that nobody could question, 
you know, what I paid for barrels. I, I went after the barrels that I wanted. So it was, um, it just kind of organically came together. And that first vintage actually turned out pretty well. So, um, and, you know, it's like any new project. The first vintage is always the easiest one to sell. Everybody's all happy and ready to buy. And um, so I finally released the wines um, in mid-2017 because I had... I didn't bottle them till the end of 16. And then it was more like August, September of 2017 that we actually released it to the list. And, you know, the wines all sold out within about six to seven months. And we started creating a list. And, um, you know, regardless whether I had, our, uh, you know, excess capital to, to give back, Heather and I still give back to a lot of schools. and. You know, I took a lot of my allocation at William Selium and Magnums and big bottles. So I, I still sign big bottles of William Selium and, you know, give them to the Alexander Valley spaghetti feed and grammar school spaghetti feed and things like that. So, you know, I think it's important to give back. And um, I really like the philanthropical part of, of the wine business. And in fact, that's the part I enjoy the most. Clearly, not only you're synonymous with William Salium as such a revered brand, really, the frame of reference for Pinot Noir in many respects, and Chardonnay for that matter, but also you such a pillar of community. The community spirit just permeates everything you do. I mean, Sonoma County embraced you and you are giving so much to it. Obviously, that's your home. And, um, you know, I just know from the reactions and from people, you know, Kind of when it contextually came up in conversation, your name, people just couldn't say enough nice things about you. And part of what came up is that you really love Sonoma County and you show it. It's actionable love, it's practical love, it's not just words. And this is the manifestation of it that when you're ready to do your own brand, you ended up, you know, making um, the charitable component, the, phil the philanthropy, is such a key factor in why you even started. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson.